Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this evening, the gift of community and the gift of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would be here present with us, guiding our conversation and speaking to us through your sacred scriptures and through the words that we share with one another. We pray especially, Lord, for the ways that we might be distracted, worried, anxious, stressed, afraid, doubtful, that you would bind and renounce those things and cast them out so that we can be fully present here. Fill us with your spirit and with your peace. Guide us in the ways we are seeking, the questions that we are asking, the things we're discerning or struggling with. You are already up to something good, and so help us to listen and discern where you are calling and leading us. Guide and bless each one of us in the ways we most need it, and we lay this next hour in your word at your feet, Lord, so that your will will be done. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Welcome. We are in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Welcome. There's room up here. Um, and we will be talking about the denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees. This picks up a little bit after where we were this past week uh, when we, we read about the greatest commandment that we heard yesterday at Mass and studied last Monday. So uh, Jesus kind of poses a, a question back at them about um, some of the prophecies associated with the Messiah. Why is he called the Lord if he's a descendant of the king? Why is there this kind of difference in, uh, in level or title? And it confuses the Pharisees. And so now that we've had these three judgment parables that Jesus has said, and then three questions from the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees trying to entrap Jesus that he has escaped, now Jesus kind of lays in to the Pharisees and the scribes. So this is the beginning of a a one to two chapter rebuke of the scribes and the Pharisees on the part of Jesus. Uh, we don't get to read all of it in the Sunday readings this cycle. We skip over some of the spicier parts. So if you want to see not lovey-dovey all the time, Jesus, like read all of Matthew 23 and 24. It's very interesting. So we're going to get into that uh, this evening. So in Matthew 23, this is the same scene. Jesus is still in the temple area talking to the same group of people, the Pharisees, the scribes, there's some Sadducees there, his disciples and the crowds. And he is uh, now, now everything is being said plainly. He's no longer speaking in parables. He's no longer being tricked by the Pharisees or scribes or attempting to be tricked. Um, he is now saying it plainly as it is. And so uh, here's the beginning of this denunciation, Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. So first time through, just get an idea, a picture for what's being said here. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. Therefore, do and observe all things whatsoever they tell you, but do not follow their example. 
For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to carry, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they will not lift a finger to move them. All their works are performed to be seen. They widen their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love places of honor at banquets, seats of honor in synagogues, greetings in marketplaces, and the salutation, Rabbi. As for you, do not be called Rabbi. You have one teacher, but one teacher, and you are all brothers. Call no one on earth your father. You have but one father in heaven. Do not be called master. You have but one master, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, beginning of Jesus' rebuke and critique of the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, Notice now, he's no longer interacting with them. He's now speaking to the crowds about all of the things that they have done corruptly and all of the practices that they are doing to not help the faithful, but to cause scandal and to drive them away how they should be acting, how they should be following the law. So we're going to read this one more time. As we do, uh, now that you have an idea for what's being said, I invite you now to pray through this passage a little more uh, in depth and listen for a particular word or phrase. See if something stands out to you personally. So this time as we read, this is not to interpret the passage theologically. This is not to notice anything about what the passage means. This is what resonates with you. Could be a single word, a detail, something jumps off the page, sparks a thought, a memory, resonates with you personally. Remember what those particular things are. Ask the Lord, why is this standing out? What are you trying to say to me through this word or this detail? Second time through, Matthew 23. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. Therefore do and observe all things whatsoever they tell you. But do not follow their example. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to carry, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they do not lift, they will not lift a finger to move them. All their works are performed to be seen. They widen their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love places of honor at banquets. Seats of honor in synagogues, greetings in marketplaces, and the salutation, Rabbi. As for you, do not be called Rabbi. You have but one teacher, and you are brothers, all brothers. Call no one on earth your father. You have but one father in heaven. Do not be called Master. You have but one master, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a few moments to reflect back on those things that stood out to you. So look over the passage, what resonated with you and why. And we'll take about the next 10 minutes 
uh, at our tables. If you're listening or watching this later, please let us know what stood out to you. But for those of us here, about 10 minutes at your tables, share what stood out to you and why, and any questions uh, that arose as you read this. What did you notice? What things do you want explained or uh, that are confusing about this passage? And then we'll bring it back to the larger group for some teaching and for some Q&A. So take about the next 10, uh, 10 to 15 minutes. So a little bit of uh, explanation of some of the, the things that are mentioned in here that um, we don't use or see you know, anymore in prayer uh, might be uh, helpful. So um, first of all, we talked about who the scribes and the Pharisees are. The scribes are, are the lawyers, the legalists who interpret the law. The Pharisees are a sect of Jews, some of which are on the Sanhedrin, some of which are not, who are zealous for the law, overzealous to the point where they are compelling people to follow laws that do not even apply to them. Laws that were reserved for the priests or the Levites when it comes to ceremonial washing. You can see this play out particularly in Matthew chapter 15 with the traditions of the elders, where uh, the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus and his disciples for not washing their hands before they eat. And they say, oh, do you not practice the traditions of the elders? Uh, and they wouldn't because that wasn't something that was required by the law. So Jesus criticizes them for overburdening. Okay, Remember, Jesus is the one who says, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. You know, And so he's kind of counteracting the overzealous overburdening of the Pharisees who understand the law, or they know the law and they teach it, but they're not following it because they don't get the heart of the law. They're just giving information and rules without knowing why. And I don't know if you remember when you were younger, or even as an adult, if you're a little more rebellious and questioning like I tend to be, someone tells you a rule, but they don't tell you why it's a rule, you like immediately want to break it. You know, you're like, why? This is a dumb rule. I don't want to follow this. Until someone tells you why, why is this important? What is this protecting you from? Then it, it, it automatically, at least in my you know, personality, poses a question. Like, that's ridiculous. Why should we have to do that? And then someone will explain it to me. I'm like, oh, I guess that makes sense. Okay. So that, that's what we're dealing with here. That's why there's this tension. And a couple of these things that the Pharisees do are mentioned here. So that's how they tie up the heavy burdens. And then Jesus says all their works are performed to be seen. And so they take these phylacteries... And um, which are things that were prescribed during prayer. They're these little small leather boxes called tefillim that inside would be scrolls of common prayers. We talked last week about the Shema and how this was a command of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, where you would say or wear that prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You would wear that in moments of prayer, not all day, but you would wear it in moments of prayer on your forehead, sometimes on your wrist or on your arm. And it was kind of a, you were putting on special attire to pray, like people do in many religions, like we still do in terms of the priesthood and the diaconate here. They vest themselves in such a way that they are entering into a special type of prayer. Uh, we even do this as well for entering into, like praying the rosary. We get the equipment that we need that we normally don't carry with us otherwise, or we normally don't wear or have exposed otherwise. So we still do this. But the problem was they were widening their phylacteries. Okay, So they instead of having this tiny scroll, they've got like a whole tapestry of scrolls in there trying to show like, look how holy I am. Look how, look how great these prayers are that I pray. And another command was that they would wear these, uh, these prayer shawls. And on the end of it, they would wear these tassels. This is a command in the book of Numbers, Chapter 15, verses uh, 30, 35-ish to uh, 30, or 38 to 39, uh, the Lord says to Moses, Speak to the Israelites, everyone, and tell them that throughout their generations they are to make tassels for the corners of their garments, 
fastening a violet cord to each one. When you use these tassels, the sight of the cord will remind you of all the commandments of the Lord, and you will do them without prostituting yourself, going after the desires of your hearts or your eyes. So they're meant to be a visual reminder. So think of the tassels and the phylacteries as ancient Jewish stained glass windows. They were visual reminders of what the faith taught and how we were to obey the law of the Lord. So they were required. And we know that Jesus followed these because, remember when he is traveling to go heal the young woman who has died to raise her from the dead, he encounters a hemorrhaging woman. And she reaches out and she touches the what? The tassel of his garment, the prayer shawl that he is wearing. So he is obedient to these commands as well. The problem is when you're widening the phylacteries and lengthening the tassels so as to be seen and to appear more holy. That's the issue. Then it goes on. They love places of honor at banquets and seats of honor in synagogues. Now at a banquet, traditionally at this time, you would seat, be seated in a U formation. And at the top of the U was the host, and they would sit in the center of a couch. And the seats of honor were right next to him on either side of the couch. Usually only three people would sit there. So you have this, who is seated on my right and on my left imagery. Remember James and John wanting to be seated at the right and left of Jesus? That's kind of that banquet type of imagery. And then the further away you get then from the couch, the seats of less honor uh, are there. So you want to get on the couch. Okay, and that's what the, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, that's all they care about. Am I seated on the couch or not? And then the place of honor in synagogues was when the chair was there for the person to sit and teach from in the synagogue. It was on a raised platform. And those people who were honored guests or rabbis, they would be seated on the platform so that the entire congregation could see them at all times. It's kind of like when you go to a graduation ceremony. And there's like everyone who's ever like touched the school on stage in their hats and capes. And they are all in these like seats of importance. And yes, they've done incredible things. But it looks like a little bit like a show sometimes, you know, that they're all up there in their special uniforms. It's kind of like that. In most graduation ceremonies, those people have earned the right to be there. In the synagogue ceremony, all they cared about, or in the experience in the synagogue, all they cared about was being seen. And so that's kind of puts into context some of these different um, things that might come up and maybe you're not sure what those terms mean or where those positions of honor were. So Jesus here is criticizing all of their desires to do things very publicly, but the law that they know so well is not penetrating the heart. They're not following it. They know it, they're speaking it, but they're not following it. And so as I read this passage, a few questions arose in my mind that I want to share with you and then we can open it up for questions and for further discussion. But I love this phrase, um, they will not lift a finger to move them. And it made me ask myself, where am I refusing to lift a finger? Where am I neglecting to lift a finger? It's very, very easy to complain and to criticize. Even in the church, I can't tell you how many times as a staff person at the parish, people approach us with ideas of how things should be done. And then we say, that's a really good idea. You should do that. And they say, oh, not me. No, I just, I'm the idea person, you know, but not willing to lift the finger to do the work. You know, a phrase that I heard from Father Mike Schmitz that I love is, see a need, fill a need. If you see a need, are you willing to step forward and fill it? If you see a need for someone to be evangelized who doesn't know the Lord, who's broken or who needs that sense of hope, who needs to know the good news of Jesus Christ, are you willing to go out of your way to fill that need? Because it's very easy for us to see a need and complain. See a need and criticize. See a need and wonder, well, why isn't this better? 
And instead of filling it, we say, well, maybe I'll just go somewhere else. Maybe I'll shop around for churches. Maybe I'll go to Mass here or there. Maybe I'll go to the Mass where they have the music that I like or the homily or the preaching that I like and not expressing the ways where needs can be filled. So that's the first thing. Secondly, do you practice what you preach? Do you practice what you preach? That's what Jesus says. All their works are performed to be seen, for they preach, but they do not practice. If someone followed you around for an entire day, an entire week, not counting Sundays, would they have any clue that you were Catholic? Would they have any clue that you were a believer, that there was anything different about you than the average person at the supermarket or out you know, living their life in the world? Would they have any clue? And would they, based on your behavior, based on your attitude, based on the things that you say and do, would they want to emulate you? Would they want to be like you? Or would they follow you around and be like, yeah, this guy's a Christian, but he's kind of a jerk. Doesn't really act like it. You know, it's easy to be a Christian when you're at church. It's really hard to be a Christian when you're on hold with customer service for 40 minutes. Or when you're stuck in traffic and the map didn't say there was going to be traffic and you've got somewhere to be. You know, or when our expectations are pulled out from under us or the barista makes your drink wrong for the fourth time. It's harder to be a Christian in those. And all those are very first world problems, my friends. But still, your true colors begin to come out a little more. And so if someone were to follow you around, see all you do, hear the gossip that you, you speak with your friends, hear you talking about that person behind their back, complaining instead of filling the need, would they be compelled to live the life that you live and believe what you believe? And the last question is, who do you go to first? See, Jesus here, he criticizes the fact that people are revering the Pharisees and calling them rabbi and master and father because he's saying they are not the people that you should be going to first. Your father in heaven deserves that place and him alone. And oftentimes, God is not our first choice, but he is our last resort. When every other attempt has failed, and only when it's really, really bad and awful and we really need a Hail Mary or a miracle, we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, please fix this. Not at the very first moment we have to make a decision or even the very first moment we have to celebrate. I tell this story all the time, so forgive me for repeating, but it's my favorite story of Mother Teresa. When she, uh, she was always famous for uh, when they would get donated new shoes to the convent, she would leave herself last and she would pick whatever pair of shoes were last and force her feet into them. So if you see pictures of her feet, they're horribly disfigured at the end of her life, bent every which way. But there was on one occasion where she was given the opportunity to get a pair of new shoes. And the first thing that she did was she brought her new shoes to the Adoration Chapel to show Jesus her new shoes. Like that's choosing Jesus first in every circumstance. Like I don't just go to him when I need something. He's not just a divine ATM or a holy Santa Claus. Well, St. Nick is holy, but you get what I mean. You know, he's not like some, some Harry Potter in the sky to wave his wand when I say the right incantation or the right prayer. He is my savior who I have a relationship with and who I am in love with and who I want to celebrate the joyful things with and who I go to when I have a decision to make or when I have a question. And I don't ask everyone else first and then evenly weigh the evidence and then go to God and let him chime in, but I've kind of already made up my mind what I'm going to do, and I'm just looking for confirmation. But do I go to him first? Do you go to him first? Do you practice what you preach? And do you see a need and complain or find a way to fill it? Questions. What things stand out to you? Anything resonate with you from this passage or any of that that I just said? Yes. 
The greatest among you must be your servant. Yes, the greatest among you must be your servant. That stood out to you? Yeah. I'm guessing because they're humbled. Yeah. They're serving and they have a job. Yeah. Someone, someone shared with me recently, I'd never thought of this before, that we often think, like, how can someone like Judas, who traveled with Jesus for three years, suddenly betray him for 30 pieces of silver? I don't know if you've thought about this before, but, like, how could, was he evil from the very beginning and just, like, under, well, Jesus obviously knew, but, like, under everyone else's radar, was he that manipulative, that good at being evil? And I don't think so. I'm not particularly convinced of that. I think that if someone posed this to me, they heard this in a lecture or something, I, I thought it was brilliant, I'd never thought about this, that the reason why Judas goes to the Pharisees is because he wants to instigate the climactic moment where Jesus reveals who he is. That Judas knows who Jesus is, but he has kind of that wrong idea that he's going to be this powerful Messiah, and he's getting a little impatient that these things aren't coming to a head so the victory of Jesus can win out. And so he goes to try and instigate the conflict and doesn't realize until it's too late that that is not what Jesus is going to do. And that's why he regrets. That's why he throws back the money. That's why he takes his own life. Not because he was lying in wait to betray the person he lived with and traveled with and loved as his rabbi, but because he loved this false idea of his rabbi too much that he, he was too impatient and wanted to get to that climactic moment, and he took it a little too far and instigated this conflict. Isn't that interesting? It just made everything make so much more human sense to me when I heard that. And so Jesus, with his disciples, in order to potentially avoid this, what does he do on the night of the Last Supper? He gets down and he washes their feet. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He is the example. He lives by that example. And then he says, as I have done to you, go and do likewise. He compels his first leaders, the first priests, the apostles in the church to be servant leaders. To serve. Not to be in positions of authority and power to see what they can get, but to lay down their lives for the mission. That is what Judas didn't get. And I think the rest of them struggled to get it, but they came around in a better way, obviously, and repented of the ways that they misunderstood. Judas was a little too, you know, much of a go-getter in that regard, possibly, to bring about that conflict, and he wasn't willing to wait and see how Jesus was going to, to reveal it. Maybe that's why. Yes? Although Jesus did say he was a thief from the beginning. That's what the gospel writer says that Jesus said later on after the fact. So we don't know if that's in addition to try and explain how the... Because it's specifically, I think, right before... I think it's in the Gospel of John, if I'm not mistaken. It talks about also the action of the devil instigating through the person of Judas. And so I think John there is writing it in that way to kind of show that this is how things were going to happen, that the devil was at work. And then trying to paint the separation from, you know, Judas was was you know, evil from the beginning. Also, think about how this looks for the apostles. They all traveled around with Jesus for three years. People knew Judas as a follower of Jesus, and then they hear about the fact, like, wow, one of your own betrayed you? That's not really a good sign. So how then, as an apostle and a gospel writer, do you write about Judas? Well, you explain that by saying, well, he was obviously a thief from the beginning. 
So, you know, we have to interpret it from that lens and, and wonder, is this exactly, well, why is this written on the, mouths, on the mouth of Jesus? Because he said it or because the apostles meant it and wanted to put it in the mouth of Jesus in a way that was authoritative to explain why Judas did what he did. Because otherwise they couldn't get it. Does that make sense? Yeah. But again, that's just a theory. You know, we don't know for sure. Yes. Um, when you talk about verse 9, I feel like that is one of the verses people bring up against Yes, Catholics. yes. This is a verse commonly instigated against us as Catholics. Call no one on earth your father. You have but one father in heaven. And what do we call our priests? Uh-oh. Are we in trouble? So the word here in Greek is patera. Patera is the word uh, for dad or father, like my biological father, as well as those who we give that level of authority to. And at this time, as you know, rabbis and disciples had a very father-son-like relationship. And so Jesus often speaks in hyperbole. It's obvious that he's not saying, you're not allowed to call anyone your dad anymore. Because we all call our fathers our fathers, right? What he's saying here, if you look at the context, don't call anyone a rabbi because you only have one teacher. Don't call anyone your father because you only have one father in heaven. Don't call anyone master or be called master because you have one master. He's saying, don't let people tell you that they can take this authoritative position in your life that only God can take. So he's using hyperbole to criticize those that want to be the one that everyone comes to. Okay, Those who are more concerned about leading others closer to themselves than leading others closer to God. Okay, because elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus uses the word Father for people other than God. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 19, to honor your father and mother. He reiterates, excuse me, the fourth commandment. He calls Abraham a father of faith in Matthew chapter 3. In Acts chapter 7, uh, Saint Stephen addresses the Jewish leaders as fathers, or the early Christian leaders as fathers. That happens elsewhere. St. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 15, says, I became your father. And he, most of all, uses this analogy as for those he teaches, he says, my son Mark or my son Barnabas, or in, uh, in Philemon, uh, the one who, your slave who escaped Onesimus has become like a son to me. Okay, so this relationship is still very much how the early church community is described as brothers and sisters, and then those who are in positions of authority who are teaching those under them, this father, mother, son, daughter imagery is used all the time after this statement in the New Testament. Now, if, if people understood properly what Jesus was saying here, they wouldn't immediately go against this rule. They obviously understood that he was speaking in hyperbole and he was talking about making sure you're not putting yourself in a position of authority and exerting your pride and vanity over the position that God has called you to, which is one of humble servant leadership. Okay, 1 John chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, I write to you fathers, as in the early leadership of the church in that area that, father, that uh, John is addressing in that letter. So this is all over the New Testament after this statement from Jesus. And it persists throughout history. And if we were to take this equally literally in every other facet, the word here for master, uh, tutors, kathagetai, is where we get uh, words like doctor and doctorate. So you would no longer be able to call anyone a master or a doctor. We all are, uh, sorry, that's in, uh, where is that? In teacher. And then the word master, we derive words like Mr. and Mrs. from master. So you would no longer be able to use any of those titles. So every Christian would be like, apostatizing this teaching of Jesus 
And Jesus would obviously wanted to, if it was going to be that common of an error, Jesus does not make mistakes. He knows what's going to happen. He would have clarified, no, this is what I mean. Make sure you don't do this so that we would not fall into error. But because he didn't, and we know that in elsewhere in Scripture, he is commonly seen as being one speaking hyperbole. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. As an example, we don't see a lot of Christians walking around like Captain Hook, you know, like, so we know Jesus speaks in hyperbole and you have to look at the context to make sure. So that's why, as Catholics, we can call our priests father, but we have to beware of things like clericalism, where we hold priests to a higher standard and we honor them when we bow down and we kiss their feet or kiss their rings as a sign of honor. Yes, we respect and honor the office, but we have to recognize this is still a human being. And yes, God works through them in supernatural ways in persona Christi, but that's when they are administering the sacraments. And that's a work that Jesus does, not that they do. Jesus does it in and through them. And so they are just like us, humans in need of a Savior who are completely dependent on Jesus. And so they need our prayers. We need their prayers. We need to support each other, but we do not worship them. We do not worship any man. We worship God and God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Great question. Yes? Yeah, kind of popping off that, I immediately thought of um, kind of the fixation we sometimes have to what the Pope does when he's not speaking authoritatively. When yes. When talking about the, the chair of Moses, describing the various particular seat on the chair of Moses, that's an authoritative seat. Yes. Um, but it seems like there's, and when they're speaking about the law, of course, they're speaking correctly. What they do other than that, not so much. Yes. So I kind of, I, that's where my mind went. Yes. Connor, thank you so much for bringing this up. This is a huge pet peeve of mine in the Catholic world that people freak out all the time about the latest thing they saw in Catholic news agency or whatever the, the article is about something controversial that a bishop or the Pope said or he was misinterpreted. And all of a sudden it's like, is the church changing its teaching on X? And the answer is almost always no. Because... We have what's called the doctrine of papal infallibility. And that means not that the Pope is always infallible. The Pope can make mistakes. The Pope goes to confession. The Pope is not perfect. What it means is that through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, when the right conditions are met, the Pope can speak definitively and authoritatively on matters of faith and morals. If he's speaking ex cathedra from the chair of St. Peter. And he uses very specific language when he does that. It's usually in very specific locations, possibly even where the chair of St. Peter is in St. John Lateran Basilica in Rome. And so he can do that. That has only ever happened twice in history, both of which were to more formally explain and define dogmas associated with the Blessed Virgin Mary that had been believed for generations, but because they weren't directly obvious in Scripture and had been passed down from little nuanced parts of Scripture and through tradition, he needed to formally declare and define them in that way. So this can only happen when the Pope speaks authoritatively or when the bishops in communion teach something in unison on the matter of faith and morals. Any other time, if the Pope is giving an interview, if he's a snippet of the conversation is taken out of context, some rando bishop says something, you do not need to believe it or follow it. It's not a matter of church teaching. It's not a matter of doctrine. When the church is very clear language and rules as to when the church defines something as a dogma, as a doctrine, or as a recommended practice. And all of those have very clear language. 
and it's something that's obvious and is done in a very official capacity. Hey, there'll be a document, very official authoritative language will be used. It won't be like one random clip of Pope Francis on CNN saying, you know what I think, you know, or whatever. You know, that's just not how it happens, okay? The church would not have lasted for 2,000 years and continued to persist if that was how loosey-goosey we handled the teachings of the church, okay? So, because of that, people who get very much a stickler for these things and how the Pope can maybe speak less clearly and they're frustrated by that because he's maybe not the type of theologian or uh, philosopher of like Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI, his predecessors, um, they get very frustrated sometimes. And we have to remember, Jesus said at the end of Gospel of Matthew, I will be with you always. I will be with you always until the end of the age. The church will always persist. Always through every trial, through every suffering, through every any scandal, anything, the church will always exist until the end of time when Jesus comes again, and then earth and heaven are made new, and the church becomes the heavenly temple in which we all dwell for eternal life if we are, uh, if we are one of the saved, if we follow the Lord and repent of our sins. That is what awaits us. So do not despair. Do not get caught up in all of the uh, you know, division or frustration about the lack of clarity or the wondering if this teaching or this teaching of the church is going to change. Um, certain teachings of the church can change and have changed throughout history. But if something is a dogma, formally defined dogma, it will and cannot ever change. It will never change. Those are the statements of the creed, the seven uh, sacraments, the four Marian dogmatic teachings on, on the Blessed Virgin Mary, and a couple other things. But basically, those things will never change. And that is the, basically the core of who we are as Catholics. Everything else, the way we practice certain things or certain teachings, like let's say priestly celibacy. Priests were not celibate in the early church. They had wives. They were married. Bishops were married. Uh, we see that in the New Testament. That could eventually change. Probably not a great idea, so it probably won't change. Uh, because if you're married to your wife and you're also married to the church and the baby's crying at 4 a.m. and someone has a sick call at a hospital also at 4 a.m. and you have to decide, not a great situation to be in, someone's going to lose out. That's why it's practical over time that priests practice celibacy and for other reasons. Uh, so these things can change, but uh, they're not the things that matter the most will never. Anyway, off my soapbox. I get so frustrated. Anyways. Thank you, Connor, for bringing that up. I'll pay you later. Um, other uh, questions, comments, things that stood out to you, things about this passage you're curious about. Yes? Uh, in verse 4, he talks about the burdens um, that the Pharisees lay. Mm -hmm. And it references back to Matthew 11, where eleven twenty-eight, I believe, where it talks about take on my burden, my burden is life. Mm -hmm. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Yeah. And I just think about is that what he, is that what he meant about the whole mosaic law and in general that it was these Pharisees would just go about all about show, but where Jesus is actually talking about internal just believe and have your heart believe in God instead of all these other burdens in the world. Yes, and well, and in in one sense, like. The law that was given through Moses is very multifaceted and like complex. So there's three different forms of the law. There's the moral law, there's the, uh, the liturgical law, how they worship, 
and then there is the ritual laws of purity and things like that. The moral law is always the moral law. If something's objectively morally bad or good, that's always going to be the same. And Jesus affirms many of these moral laws. Those are the things that persist. Um, but liturgical law, the way that they worship, we no longer, if we need to make purification for our sins, go to Jerusalem with a year old lamb and make sacrifice to the temple because the temple's not there and gross. So we don't do that anymore. You know, um, I, I wouldn't have the stomach for it personally. Um, so obviously those laws are no longer in place. And then a lot of these other laws, the ritual purity laws, had to do with other groups that were around at the time of the Jews that were pagan or idolatrous in some way. And God was speaking to them to say, don't do these very specific things, not because I don't like them, but because they're associated with these other groups and you are meant to be set apart. So people will often criticize Christians and they'll bring up the book of Leviticus and you say, well, you don't like these moral laws, but are you following the rest of the laws in Leviticus? Like, do you wear, uh, do you let all of your crops lie fallow for three years before you pick the fruit? And do you ask your produce person if that's what you've done? Do you wear clothing that has two different kinds of material woven together? Those things are forbidden by Leviticus. The reason they're forbidden is because outside pagan and idolatrous tribes were doing those different practices and God wanted them to be set apart. So there's certain rules of the law that Jesus understood their proper order and hierarchy. The Pharisees did not. They wanted everything followed to the law. There was no disparity. Okay. So an example is when you're young, your parents tell you, hold my hand when we cross the street. Don't drink anything under the sink. When you're old, do you have to hold your parents' hands when you cross the street? No. Can you drink anything under the sink? No, you still a rule, right? Always a rule. That's like the moral law, always a rule. But certain things, because the Jewish people were very young, like toddlers in their relationship with God, God had to give them a lot of do this, don't do that. My daily conversation with my children. He had to do that to them because they had to learn how do we behave differently than everything we've ever experienced or seen in our entire lives. So God says, look, I will spell it out for you in 613 rules. Jesus understood all those were for that group of rules was to root idolatry out of your heart and make sure that you saw that God was your father and you were called to be in relationship with him. That's why it's so easy for Jesus to summarize the law as love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. That's the ritual law and how we worship and love your neighbor as yourself, the moral law. He understood the proper context. He didn't change the law. He brought it to its proper maturation. The Pharisees it was just what was written, that's what we did, and then some. And obviously that becomes problematic and a huge burden for people because let alone memorizing 613, remembering what day of the week, what festival, when they apply, when they don't, is near impossible. And only time it's brought up is when you fail. That's not a very fun system to live in. So that's why it was so burdensome. And so that Quoting back to Matthew 11, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We've talked about the yoke, that wooden bar that was placed upon two animals to be plowed. And if the yoke was misshapen or if the plows, or if the animals were uneven or working at different rates, then your, your uh, field would not be plowed properly. And that would be an obvious uh, opportunity for shame among the community. If you were that like dim that you couldn't just plow a straight line in your field, it would be like everyone would see like, look at Gary and his weird lines in his, in his field. Like it would just be like, you can't even plow. So that's how ridiculous it is and how burdensome it is if you are unequally yoked. 
Jesus uses this as an analogy for marriage, that two people need to be equally yoked, but he also uses it as a relation, as uh, an example of our relationship with him. That yes, he will walk alongside us. We still need to do the work, but he is going to be there with us, not to burden us, but to bring us along. So it's kind of like that phrase that's attributed to St. Augustine, uh, pray as if everything depended on God, work as if everything depended on you. Equally yoked. That's the real recognition and meaning of the law. Jesus understood that. He's revealing that to the crowds and the disciples. The Pharisees and the scribes don't get it. Other questions, thoughts, reflections, things that stood out to you? Jared. So I shouldn't drink from my No, 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 no. Your mom will not be happy about that. Uh, other people won't be either, but yeah, that's bad. Thank you for asking. Maybe other people had that same question. They were too afraid to ask. <laughs> yes? I have a question. Beautiful, yes. Yeah, you can put me on my toes. Someone always does. I just was curious. Yeah. I've been thinking about this. Um, in the early church, how many of the people that were in the early church, like let's say in the first 100 years or 50 years, mm -hmm. were converted Jews versus Gentiles? Um, you know, an actual number? I have no idea. I have no idea, but I would, I would, I would, uh, based on the, the writings and how the missionary spirit of the church played out in Acts of the Apostles, they always went to the Jews first, usually unsuccessfully. And so a lot of Gentiles initially, um, and then as it spread and more of that, and especially once Christianity stopped being persecuted and became legalized and Judaism was very much even more persecuted and oppressed by Rome, um, and this kind of need to band together and seek a commonality throughout history happened in different times. Uh, I think more Jews then converted at that point. But there's obviously Judaism is still a religion that exists and is one of the prominent, most prominent religions in the world. So it's obvious many of them didn't and continue to not. Um, so I would, I would argue, I don't know the figures. I could be totally wrong about this. I don't need figures. I mean just... I would, my, it would be my educated guess that it was predominantly Gentiles. Okay. But there were very mixed communities. And I think a lot of the leadership in the churches, which is why this was difficult, were the early Jewish converts that knew Jesus and knew the early disciples and understood this is the Messiah. And they responded and became those early leaders, and then they evangelized Gentiles. And then you have in all these churches, Gentiles and Jews trying to coexist. Jews saying, you have to eat kosher and you have to get circumcised. And Gentiles are like, whoa, I was just believing in this Jesus guy. You didn't say anything about circumcision, you know? So... <laughs> All of this difficulty happens, and that's why Paul has to write all of these letters and remind them, like, we're united in Christ. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, no longer male or female, no longer slave or free. All are one in Christ Jesus. So um, that's why it's difficult. Or, if, for instance, in Rome, uh, the book of Romans is written to the church in Rome after the emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. And then five years later, they're allowed to come back, and now they're all trying to live together, while the Gentile church had gotten used to just being themselves for five entire years. And so they have a lot of problems, which is why Romans is one of the best defined theological arguments of Christianity in the New Testament, because Paul has to spell out, this is what justifies you. This is what matters. The old law doesn't matter. The new law is in Christ Jesus. So he's very intentional in Romans for that reason. So we see they're both prominent. More in the leadership, I would argue, early on the Jewish side, a lot of converts on the Gentile side, and then probably skews more toward Gentiles with time, would be my guess. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Exactly 42,000. No. 
<laughs> Wouldn't that have been crazy if I knew that? Or just like, boom, that would have been nuts. Anyway, any other uh, questions, comments? We've got time for one or two more. Yes? First, uh, first, well, I just kind of thought about how living a life that truly glorifies God is often not resulting in a worldly sense. And it's mm. Yeah. Um, it's kind of that. Yeah. I just gave a talk on, on Thursday to the ladies at Free to Be about some saints, some of my favorite saints. And uh, one of my absolute favorite saints is St. Philip Neri. And if you know the story of Philip Neri, he was a saint who was prominent in the Counter-Reformation in Catholicism, who was friends with St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Francis Xavier, St. Robert Bellarmine, St. Charles Borromeo, all these big people, um, was ordained with, or not ordained, canonized with many of them, including Teresa of Avila and St. Isidore. And yeah, a super stellar guy. But he was very much kind of a lone wolf in his work in the streets and his desire to live the gospel and then got inspired by these people and befriended them. But his whole thing was he didn't want holiness to be something that other people saw him for. So he would just play like ridiculous practical jokes and make himself a fool so that people wouldn't take him seriously. And once he started an order, a confraternity of priests, he would make the confreres in his order do the same thing. So there's a famous story of when they were uh, having dinner for a cardinal and he sent a priest out to serve the cardinal with a monkey with a beretta on his head and a gun in his hand on his shoulder. And that was just his personality. He would walk around the city with half his beard shaved off, not even mention it, like no big deal. He would wear his Beretta cock to the side like he was careless. He didn't care what people thought because he didn't want people to be like, oh, look at this holy, amazing priest and treat him in kind of the clericalist way. He very much embodied that kind of zeal for the Lord and the humility of Christ. Um, and and his, it, the miraculous thing that happened to him, among many things, is that when he was praying in the catacombs, um, when he was a younger priest, actually, I don't even think he was a priest yet. He was a layman. And uh, this fireball went into his throat and down into his chest. And he, uh, his ribs swelled. Uh, and he had this bump on his left side for, for his entire life um, after that. And when, they, when he died and they did his autopsy, they found that his heart had swelled two to three size, times the size of a normal person's. And it showed just the love and the joy that he had, that he exuded to everyone. And so someone who was writing about him said, we have over a hundred saints in historical record who've had the stigmata, the wounds of Christ in some way. There's only ever been one saint whose heart grew too big for his chest to hold because he loved the Lord that much. And that was St. Philip Neri. So he's a great example of that humility. But because of that, you have to embody like what scripture says, like God chose the foolish of the world to shame the wise. Like we have to be willing to look ridiculous and foolish in the eyes of the world in order to follow the Lord. Like the world says, you got to go to that good school and get that paycheck and be successful and have the big house and have the Instagrammable family. And the way that we live our lives as Christians looks ridiculous compared to that. Like, why would you do that if that's the standard? And praise God, it looks ridiculous because then we know we're doing it right. But it's always going to look different from the world. That's what it means to be holy. Holy means to be set apart. If we look like the world, we're not doing it right. Something's wrong. One last question or comment? Craig. Seems like we've had a number of gospels recently, like where Jesus is calling out the Pharisees either in person mm -hmm. or around them. Mm -hmm. Whereas earlier, I usually he'll say something obliquely about them, and it'll go off and I'll meet the woman at the well, or and if he'll, he'll sure. heal someone or something like that. He'll say something else about it. It's like, we seem to be having gospel after gospel after gospel. Mm -hmm. 
So where, where is this in Jesus's life? Uh, yeah, this is Holy Week. This is the last week of his life. That's why he's ramping it up, because he's working toward that climactic moment where his mission is going to be fulfilled and he's going to be crucified. So before, he's been very careful. When he performs a miracle, he says, don't tell anyone what you've seen. And he'll criticize the Pharisees here or there, and then he'll leave town. Now he's here for the big show. And he's letting them have it because he knows what, what it's going to end in. And if you don't believe me, read the rest of chapter 23, the very next verse. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You lock the kingdom of heaven before human beings. And it continues for the entire chapter. Okay, So, you know, this is one to bookmark. We don't get to read the rest of this. But all of Matthew 23 is a scathing rebuke of the Pharisees. And so if you have a picture of hippie Jesus in your head, like Jesus says, everybody love everyone, be coming for a hug, you're missing the fiery part of Jesus that's passionate for the truth and that loves justice, who's very present here in Matthew chapter 23. So, so pray with feisty Jesus this week. Read that chapter um, and use it as a litmus test for your own life. Because at this time, remember, rabbis were around the age of 30. Most disciples were teenagers and young adults. So for most of us in the church, we're in the category that are going to be commonly criticized as potential Pharisees. You know, Jesus came really to, to seek the young, the foolish of that world, to shame the wise. And that's why he says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to receive it like a child. And so if we are beginning to fall into the pattern of taking ourselves too seriously, being too adult and mature in our faith for those silly games or those silly thoughts then we're, we're walking a dangerous line that if Jesus were here today, he would continue to criticize. So it doesn't mean if you're older, you're a Pharisee. If you're younger, you're a disciple. That's not what I'm saying. But it means that we can be old or young at heart in any scenario, but we have to recognize the context Jesus came in, who he called and why, because they were closer to the kingdom because of their youth. And if we can keep that youthful spirit, that foolishness, that holy foolishness, detachment from the world, carelessness about what other people think, freedom from anxiety about the things of this world because we know where we're going, then, then we are living the life of discipleship, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this night and this study. For everyone here, I, just, I thank you so much, Lord, for all that you are doing in our lives, all the ways that you've worked, especially today, all the ways that went unnoticed and unthanked, all the ways you've blessed us, all the ways that you are sustaining us, and reminding us that we have a purpose, that we are still here for a reason, and that you are guiding us to good things, to blessing, to abundance for ourselves and for others. And so no matter the trials, the sufferings that we experience, Lord, we know that you are always up to something good. And so help us to have faith in you. And help us, Lord, to take this reading to heart this week to really assess our own spirituality. Do we take ourselves too seriously? Are we complaining or are we seeing a need and filling it? Do we come to you first? Are we practicing what we preach? Help us, Lord, in all the ways that we are insufficient in those areas because we cannot do this on our own, not by our own merit, but only by your grace. And so make it happen in us so that we can do the good works you call us to do. We pray all these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So great.